0: Shabbat shalom, everyone. You may be seated. If you are uh, 75 years old or older, you remember exactly where you were on November 29, 1947, when the United Nations voted for a UN partition plan. And if you are 60 years old or older, you remember where you were on November 23rd, 1963, when the news came in from Dallas. If you're 25 years old or older, you know where you were on that November Saturday afternoon when the news broke that Yitzhak Rabin was shot. And a few hours later, we heard that he was killed. And if you're 20 years old or older, You know exactly where you were when you heard that a plane had gone into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And if you are 35 years old or older, you know exactly where you were 30 years ago this week when you heard that the space shuttle Challenger had a terrible accident and blew up. I remember where I was. I was in seventh grade in my science class at Solomon Schechter, and my science teacher was crying uncontrollably because she was one of the teachers who had applied to be the first civilian in space. If you remember, on that ill-fated flight was Krista McAuliffe, who was a science teacher. And my science teacher was crying, and shortly later, we were called to an assembly, and All of us gathered, and we were shown the terrible video footage and the news. And so many other teachers were crying because of what Krista McAuliffe represented. And it was an incredibly sad moment for our country, for our world. And just like every single one of these moments that I had mentioned before, whether it was the partition plan for Israel or whether it was Kennedy being shot or Rabin's assassination or 9-11... Not only do we all remember exactly where we were, but we all remember that incredible moment of unity that galvanized us individually as a family and as a country, whether it be Israel or America, in its immediate aftermath. I grew up for a short time in my life when I was young in Florida. And as the space shuttle program was just beginning, we used to go outside of our house And you could see the space shuttle taking off almost every single time. So for me, shortly after we had moved from Florida to Detroit, I had finished the sixth grade and gone, it had even more significance to me, knowing that all my old classmates were standing outside every time the shuttle took off to watch it, as you could see in the sky, and to know about that terrible tragedy on that incredibly clear day. And while that day was indeed very tragic, 73 seconds into that flight, when we learned that one of the O-rings, had not been sealed properly and caused the entire shuttle to blow up. What we found out later through research that had been wildly suppressed because of sensitivity to the family and sensitivity to the space program was that there was another tragedy that happened. The way that the space shuttle was made for all of the shuttles, whether it was Columbia or Endeavor or Challenger, All of them, where the cockpit was, where the flight crew sat for that flight, was encapsulated and pressurized and sealed. And what we learned, sadly, after that terrible tragedy that was exactly the same when it was Columbia, years later, is that when the space shuttle indeed blew up, that the astronauts did not die instantly. In fact, they were all together, the scientists concluded, and were alive, and realized that something terrible had gone wrong. In fact, the last words that are caught through the radio that was taped was, "Uh uh-oh, oh no. And what we learned scientifically as a result of this process was that not only did the seven astronauts survive the explosion, But what killed them was impact into the Atlantic, which meant that for two and a half minutes from the time of the explosion until that capsule where they all were hit the Atlantic, they were all alive and conscious and aware. Aware as scientists and aware as human beings that they had two and a half minutes to live. Could you imagine, God forbid, if any of us knew that we had two and a half minutes left to live? Two and a half minutes left to live and we knew that our death was imminent. How would we live our life? And what would go through our mind? One of my teachers and mentors in the world is a guy by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner. And Kushner says that he believes, and he's very familiar with this topic, that most people aren't afraid of dying. They're afraid of something else. Kushner contends that more people are afraid of having not lived and facing their death riddled with regrets, more so than they are afraid of the notion of dying itself. And he knows that as someone who's gone through the worst tragedy imaginable, and that is losing a child. And he also knows that as a pastor who tends to the needs of so many people and their families. And I think he's right. I think there's every single one of us in this room is loaded with a sense of regret, and I know that when I sit by the bedside of someone in their late 90s or someone who has plagued with a terrible disease in their early 40s, and I hold their hand and I talk to them, that inevitably they talk to me about the notion of regrets, not the notion of satisfaction. So what does that teach us? What do we learn from this? And if we're trying to imagine the unimaginable, the unthinkable, what were those astronauts thinking in those two and a half minutes 30 years ago this week? I remember exactly where I was on September the 11th. I was on an airplane early in the morning, took off from LaGuardia, headed west. We landed in Detroit. And if you remember like I remember, Most of the telephones didn't work. The systems were down because a lot of the towers and the connectivity were on top of the World Trade Center. And Dory, who was my relatively new bride of just a few years, was petrified because the news accounts, which were very shoddy that morning, said that a whole handful of airplanes from New York were hijacked and being crashed into buildings. And she knew that I was on a plane early in the morning. And I couldn't get word to her that we were landed in Detroit. I had rented a car and we were safe. And all that went through my head and all that went through her head for the balance of that day until we were able to connect by phone was if I had only. She told me over and over that day on the phone when we were able to connect and when I saw her early in the morning that next day because I got in the car and drove back. If only I had gotten up to walk you to the door or helped you pack or sent you a love note. If only I had kissed you for another minute before you left instead of lying in bed, still asleep and just saying goodbye, be safe. If only. If only I had hugged you a little bit more the night before. If only I had a few more of those moments. Those are the things that riddle us. Except, to be very honest with you, we were the lucky ones because we survived. I wasn't on an ill-fated plane. We touched down. I got in the car and safely made it home. And she was safe, even though she worked downtown. And we embraced, and we were okay. But for so many other people, they have those thoughts. Those that were alive for just a little bit longer in that building, knowing as the smoke was coming up, and those who lived with just those seconds or minutes of regrets, just like the astronauts did. If only they had given off one more kiss, or one more love, or one more word, or one more thing positive. The other thing I think that goes through their mind is not only about the relationship you share with your partner, but also with our children. Our children are the most amazing and precious things in the world and all of us could stand up and argue with any of us about how special our kids are more than any other and that's what makes our relationships with our children so unique and so special. But any child, I don't care how much you love them or who they are, any child can get on our nerves at times. Any child can want to snuggle or nag or ask for something or behave a certain way and drive us up a wall where we just want to keep them far, far away because we need a break and we need a respite. There are times I sit on my special chair with my feet up in the family room, which doesn't get to happen oh so often, and turn on whatever I can, maybe even that godfather we talked about earlier, and one of my kids comes up and says, can we put on a kid show? Or can I snuggle on the chair with you? Or can I do any of these things? And nine times out of 10, of course they can maybe eight times out of ten. But then there's those times where I just want the chair to myself because I worked a 17-hour day before. Or I just want the chair to myself because I've been tending to everyone else's needs for the last two weeks. Or I just want to watch the show because I've been watching all these kids' shows, and then what ends up happening is, I blink, and you blink too. And you look at the kids, And they never want to snuggle with you anymore. Why? Because they're 12 and they're 13 and 14 and 15. And we're lucky if they want to grab a meal with us. And we're lucky if they want to do something that's not only going to redound to their benefit. Not because they're jerky kids. They're not. They're just kids that are growing up. And how many kids that are growing up want to spend all their waking time connecting with their parents? And we regret those moments that went by like a Concord plane so quickly where we can't get back those cuddle moments or that kids channel or those conversations that we so quickly yearn for and want close. Because, if only. And what about other relationships we have? This June will be five years since my dad died. And he died pretty quickly. He got sick and four days later he died. And this July will be 19 years, 20 years, 20 years that my brother Gabe died. And a day, not a day goes by that I don't think of both of them. And not a day that goes by that I wouldn't think of something so sacred and so special to me that I would forfeit in an instant just to have another hour or two with each of them. But it wasn't always that way. My brother Gabe was my oldest brother. 13 years, almost 14 years, my senior. And he had assumed the role, deputized by himself, to be my second parent, which, when you're five and he's 19 or 20, is annoying. And I would let him know how annoying that was, especially as I continued to grow and mature. But... When I'm 25 and 30, when I'm becoming a rabbi and he had been a rabbi, when I'm having kids and he had kids, when I'm working through issues in my marriage and he had done the same, or when I was just looking for a friend because God knows how close my brothers are to me today, there are times where his absence and vacancy leaves a hole in my heart that no patch could ever fill, ever, And my dad. Like many of you, I had a complicated relationship with my father. Sometimes we're great, sometimes weren't great. He always loved me, I was never abused, thank God, he always treated me well. But we clashed not every day, but some days. And there were some days when I would be in the car and his phone that he would call me from from his cell phone would call in, and I just wasn't in the mood to deal with his mishagas. Because sometimes my dad had mishigas where he talked about things I didn't want to talk about or didn't want to deal with. And I would hit that little button that said, decline, or pretend like I was on another call. And I'd call him back the next day, and if he brought up the mishigas, I'd say something like, I got to take another call, or I'll call you later, because that was my my deflect to not get into it, not clash. Do you know what I would do today to listen to that mishagas for a few hours? You know what I would do today to sit by his bedside and to have him tell me stories about his childhood and his parents and grandparents that I always glossed over and didn't appreciate at the time? Do you know what I would do today to have his counsel for some of the things that I've struggled through in the last five years that have nothing to do with his death but have everything to do with my life? I would give up some of the most sacred things I have. And I miss him so much. And what I realize my life is riddled with just the same is that notion of regret. If only I had hit decline three or four or five or 10 less times. If only my 11-year-old girl, who I have to bribe, who is an amazing, amazing human being, but I got to bribe her to go spend time together. Why? because she's online and has social media and has her friends and what she really wants to do is be dropped off at the mall with their girlfriends. And I don't blame her, I was 11 once. But what I would do to go back to when she was 6 and 7 and wanted to watch that kid show or wanted to snuggle with me on that chair. So what do we learn from this? I'll tell you something that I've learned and I've shared with you before. Before my brother Gabriel died tragically and unexpectedly, on a random Wednesday in July, Our family was close, but nothing like it is now. 20 years after his death, we don't miss Simchas. And my brothers, once, twice a day, I talk to them without question. And no matter how quick our conversation, no matter what's going on, we always close every conversation with the words, I love you. And even if we have a tiff, which frankly, we don't have very much anymore, we always say, I love you. It's not worth it. And we get past it. And so many times, when my mother calls, she's got mishigas too. You find me one Jewish parent that doesn't. Or my brothers call, it doesn't matter how busy I am. Hi, I can't talk to you right now. I'll call you back. I love you. Now, I wish I could look all of you in the eye and say, I know that because I'm such an amazing person and rabbi and brother and parent. But I can't. I can tell you all that because I have scars on my heart that will never go away from having learned a lesson that is so incredibly painful. And as I look around in this room, I know so many of you who have shared in that painful lesson. No matter what kind of day we have or what kind of fight we might have gotten into or what kind of issues are going on, high or low. And never leave the house, and Dory never leaves the house ever since that September 11th day without saying the words, I love you, and with the kiss. Sometimes it's a peck on the cheek. Sometimes it's a kiss on the lips. Sometimes it's a funny kiss. Sometimes it's more romantic. It depends on what's going on. But the part that is sacrosanct is that connectivity. Why? Because we remember too well where we were on that day. Just a few days ago, I went to go see Fiddler on Broadway. The show was great. The words are the same, the songs are the same, the music was good, the choreography was exceptional. But for some reason or another, as I thought about these anniversaries and these moments and they started singing the song, Sunrise, Sunset, Swiftly Go the Years, it resonated with me in a much more potent, direct way, right to my heart, and what I wouldn't do to have some of those moments back. If only I had known that when I said goodbye to my brother before I had left for Israel to lead a tour of teenagers while I was in rabbinical school, that would have been my last goodbye, and he would die 10 days later. If only I had known all those phone calls, all those phone calls that I hit decline when I should have hit accept and how I missed them. If only I had thought about what could happen when I get on that airplane every day, and not just that day on September 11th. Perhaps Dory and I wouldn't have been riddled with that sense of guilt that stayed deep in our heart and soul for so many days and years even, after that occasion, for us realizing that what we had, so many others didn't. And I can't let those moments with my kids, and you can't with your kids, slip in between our fingers. I heard a a great Yiddish proverb. Yiddish proverb is, what makes a person old A person doesn't become old when they remember the UN partition plan and they don't become old when they remember where they were when Kennedy was shot and they don't become old if they know exactly what room they were sitting in when they heard the news about Rabin being assassinated. They don't become old if they remember which classroom they were in when they heard about the Twin Towers or, God forbid, where they were when the Challenger exploded. A person becomes old when their regrets replace their dreams. A person becomes old when their regrets replace their dreams. On this Shabbat, which commemorates the 30th anniversary of this terrible tragedy, let it do for us as a people and as a community and as a world what those moments did for us and unify us and bring us together and teach us a lesson. It was those dreams that we had that allowed us to walk on the moon literally and figuratively. But don't let those moments between that journey from here to that moon be filled with regrets or loaded with the words, if only I had. Let them be full of satisfaction and contentment so that, please God, when all of us are indeed old, filled with memories of milestones and markers in our lives, We can have a sense of, thank God I did, and a sense of satisfaction as opposed to if only. Whether we were the Israelites crossing the sea, whether we were the Israelites down at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses, whether we were on a plane and whether it was ill-fated or going to land safely, let us live our lives with satisfaction.